Yes, yes, my dear, that's much better now. Hold it a second. Now, Lena, look. Here's the mic. Right here in the bush. Yeah. Now you talk towards it. The sound goes through the cable to the box. A man records it on a big record in wax. But you have to talk into the mic first. In the bush. I'll try it again. Cheers is dumb. slow tonight, isn't it? <laughs> You're right, Mr. Thatcher. I did lose a million dollars last year. I expect to lose a million dollars this year. I expect to lose a million dollars next year. You know, Mr. Thatcher, at the rate of a million dollars a year, I'll have to close this place in 60 years. Say what again? I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. We killed him, Andrew. Shot him in the back. The mountain man. And I'll bet what you hated the most is that they identified me as a co-founder of Facebook, which I am. You better lawyer up, asshole, because I'm not coming back for 30%. I'm coming back for everything. 52 Red Queens and me are telling you, you know what we're telling you? It's over. The links, the beautifully conditioned links are smashed. They're smashed as of now because we say so. Conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Hello, you brilliant, astute, quick-witted, and pretentious listeners. Welcome to Not a Bomb presents the classics. Yes, last year we slummed through the depths of the worst films to see if we could break Brad. This year, we shall take on the classics. Brad, what do you have to present this evening to kick off this most pretentious and monumentous year? Oh, audiences gather around. We've got Citizen Kane. <laughs> Sorry, we've got uh, <laughs> uh, we've got Citizen Kane for us, and to uh, help us review such a fantastic film, we have Jose from Watch Skip Plus question mark yes, and we have Sammy from the GGTMC fellas. Yes. We survived last year. We're on to pretentious movies. I love it. Yes. Yes. Let's do it. Jose, Sammy, welcome. Hello. Where's your monocle? Hello. (laughs) Our monocles? Yeah. Your monocles. I'm I'm wearing mine under my pants. Oh. No. It doesn't go there, Sammy. I don't know if you... (laughs) (laughs) It only does have one eye, so... Oh, true. (laughs) The monocle is between my cheeks. Whoa, hey. Uh... (laughs) Brad, do you, yes, sir. You, all of us got to pick a film for uh, the next twelve months. Mm-hmm. This, three films, three films each, right? Yeah. Uh, I think we're. This one is yours, right? 
It is. Uh, January is my birthday month, so I I, I wanted to go first. Okay. Nice. And so I picked Citizen Kane, and the reason I, I picked Citizen Kane is, like, I remember hearing from uh, the big people, the older people <laughs> around uh, my neck of the woods. The that, boomers? Are you talking about yeah, the boomers? The boomers. <laughs> uh, yes, that Citizen Kane was considered the greatest film of all time. And I, as a little pretentious asshole, was like, I have to like Citizen Kane because it's the greatest film of all time. So I, I almost forced myself to like it. But I, I remember watching it with my parents on like Turner Classic um, a few times. And I liked it then and then became to to love it once I learned all the technical stuff that went behind it and, and just how, um, I don't know, how, how like pioneering it was and, and how it kind of, you could argue that Citizen Kane like launched modern films, um, even though it came in 1941. And so when we said, hey, we're going to do this project and do the classics, I was like, well, we have to start with Citizen Kane. Okay. Well, I, I did want to read that. I, I think this is um, probably, I, I don't know. I, there's been so many editions of this film put out. Criterion just did a nice fancy 4K. Uh, I, I still retained this, um, I think it was Warner Brothers Ultimate Collector's Edition for the 70th anniversary. Came with all this uh, cool stuff in it. But there was a uh, little hardcover book in there. And in the intro, it, it started Citizen Kane this way. 70 years after it was first released, Citizen Kane remains, in a great many estimations, the greatest film ever made. No hyperbole, not stretch of the imagination required, or no stretch of the imagination required. I think it's a typo from me. The film that barely made a buck at the box office and was widely booed during the 14th Academy Awards, the miracle film that by all Hollywood standards couldn't have been made, and that one singularly powerful and wealthy individual didn't want made, somehow came to fruition and somehow ended up being the preeminent example of the power of movie making. You think that pretty much sums it up? I, yeah, it, it, there is a fascinating story of how this came to be and how it was almost not been. (laughs) (laughs) uh, And just all the stuff around it and how, Orson Welles might be kind of an asshole, so we'll we'll get to that uh, later on. Okay. Well, I don't, I don't think there's anything that we're going to add to the discussion that hasn't been covered by um, even people like Roger Ebert or Peter Bogdanovich, who does amazing commentaries uh, on all these editions that are out there. I, I think we're each tackling it from a viewing experience that we've had, plus some of the stuff that we've watched on top of the film. Uh, and I do have a couple of questions about it because, um, I, like Brad, this is one of those films that, um, I don't know, when you get introduced to it, it's almost fed to you as like, you must love this thing and you must appreciate it and you must understand why it's so important. And that for decades, it held like the greatest movie ever made title. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, uh, Jose, I want to start with you is is this something that out of the gate, the first time you saw it, I don't know when you saw it, did you appreciate it? Uh, well, Brad talked about being a uh, fledgling pretentious film lover. And uh, I, this is probably going to surprise you guys. But when I started diving into film and watching film, 
I was known as the person who refused to watch black and white movies. No. (laughs) Yes, indeed. I was like, why would I want to go? Why would I want to see something in black and white? Um, Newsflash, Jose doesn't like black and white. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, I had also heard, well, if you like movies, you must love Citizen Kane. And I I remember watching it and just sort of being like, yeah. Okay. No. Okay. Um, that was your reaction. Just meh. Just meh. Yeah. Okay. Basically. I mean, listen, listen. I grew up watching, you know, on HBO things like The Hitcher and uh, I Come in Peace or whatever. And so, um, you know, actually, one of my all-time favorite movies is Psycho, which is a black and white film. So I've come a long way, folks. Um, but. Yeah, with Citizen Kane, the first time I watched it, I was kind of like, why is this such a big deal? Like, I, I'm like, the guy's a jerk, and, you know, what? why is this entertaining? And then I sort of researched all the cinematography things that went into it, who Orson Welles was. He wasn't just this big, slobby, flat, fat guy with, like, a beard. <laughs> who was whatever, selling fish you know? sticks. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Gordon's Fisherman, whatever. But, um... And then I watched it again and I began to appreciate it more, especially when I would see things that were in this film crop up in films by like, say, Tim Burton or, uh, you know, Fincher, those kinds of things. And it's kind of like, oh, God, that's where that came from. (laughs) That's where they're stealing from, you know. So I, I think while I didn't I didn't immediately be bold, I wasn't immediately bowled over by it. It it has definitely impressed me since. Okay. What about you, Sammy? I mean, um, when did you get first introduced to this and and what was your initial reaction? So I came to Kane kind of late. I had already fallen in love with other movies before citizen Kane, uh, was a part of my life. Um, you know, I was really into universal horror films and, uh, you know, growing up with my generation, at least three of us are similar. I don't know how much you guys did this, but I know a lot of times I would come home and it was really great. I'd come home from school and they'd show like Laurel and Hardy reruns, like the short films, and they or they'd show. <laughs> I just uh, I laughed at the filters that are being applied to the conversation here. Um, the uh, or the you know even Charlie Chaplin films or anything like that. But you know the Three Stooges. These are all these were all short films. I thought they were TV shows, but they were short films. And uh, so for me. You know, great old films had Abbott and Costello in them or uh, somebody like that. But so I came to Kane quite late and I didn't really as a young kid, I I only wanted the fantastical really. Right. The horror movies or supernatural or action of some sort. Kane was really not on my radar, but the person who turned me on to Kane would have been Bogdanovich more than likely. I. Saw uh, Last Picture Show before Kane, and I remember some interviews with Bogdanovich and things like that. And he was talking about Orson Welles and you know how, what what Kane meant to him. And then I started you know getting more and more into directors, and everybody was saying Kane. So I was like, well, I better go back and watch this. And Kane, one of the great things about it being kind of known as the greatest film of all time in some circles is it was very available. So I was able to rent it on uh, VHS. That's how I saw it the first time. Uh, probably in mid to late eighties, I'd say. Okay. And, uh, 
I quite liked it. I, I thought it was striking. I didn't see the influence yet. Not everywhere, but I saw something. What I did see is this, um, this lifelong love I've had of the character that is self-destructive. <laughs> uh, that caught me right off the bat. And uh, it tends to be, you know, cinema that I'm interested in. It seems like Paul Schrader, Peter Bogdanovich, so many people, Martin Scorsese. So many people are interested in it. And then you get other directors who are influenced by it, like Brian De Palma or Steven Spielberg, who's a huge fan, right? And uh, I can see it sometimes, but most of the time I can't. I won't talk about it now, why I think this film will last forever. I'll talk about it when we start reviewing it, but <laughs> I still think it's it's quite a powerful piece of cinema. And to think about how old this film is now and how poignant and how kind of scary. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it just it's, it's interesting to me. And uh, even saying that, it's interesting that some people consider this their favorite film. Some people that are out there with very big mouths. <laughs> uh yeah i i'm i'm very much a it's funny you said the last picture show that was that was one of my father's favorite films yeah, and great, yeah great the, there's there's just a whole list of movies that i probably would have never seen had it not been my father to sit me down and go hey you need to watch this and this is why that's important etc citizen kane was not one of those surprisingly mm. um i know he had seen it but i don't know if he thought it was that big of a deal and I don't think I ever really ran across it until college. And for me, watching it, I think I had a very cold reaction to it. It, it wasn't your reaction, Jose, where it was like, Bleh, you know, it was, oh, I get it. I understand the, the, craft, the craftsmanship of what's going on. And as a story, it didn't really affect me. But as a film and watching the techniques and everything that was being developed for that time, I was really fascinated by it. But it left me very cold, meaning I wasn't as invested in the story as I was into the filmmaking, if that makes any sense. But it's yeah. one that I keep going back to. And as I get older, I find more and more of an appreciation for it. And not so much from the artistry that's happening with Orson Welles and, um, and any of the cinematography and stuff like that, and even just the groundbreaking editing. But all of a sudden, the story matters a little bit more as you get older, right? It's one of those films that you watch it in your 30s, you watch it in your 40s, 50s, 60s. I think it's just going to mean something different as you get older. There's not a lot of cinema that does that, in my opinion. I think in your, in your 20s, you're going to look at that and go, yeah, it's an interesting piece of film. Um, it's an interesting historical piece of film, but you don't really appreciate what's going on unless you get some age behind you, in my opinion. Mm. Uh, but with that, let's get into, I guess, this week's watch. I think for all of us, um, and I, I, I'm just going to make an assumption here because we've been texting like, I don't know, every day. <laughs> Everybody, yeah, we do that anyway. <laughs> I know we we went down the rabbit hole. I feel like we all went down the rabbit hole. It wasn't that we watched Citizen Kane. It was oh, we went and watched documentaries about William Randolph Hearst. Oh, we watched the RKO two eight one. Oh, here's all the special features. Oh, we went and watched Citizen Kane again with audio commentary. I mean, that was pretty much everybody's experience for the last few weeks, right? 
Yeah. Did anybody get uh, Brad? Did you get Mank back in? Did you get it in? I tried. I, I did not. I, I moved. I did the uh, the battle for Citizen Kane instead. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I did the documentary that's on this disc, this 4K disc, which I believe was on the laser disc release. Troy, do you own this laser disc? Uh, I did. I sold it once the 70th anniversary Blu-ray came out. Gotcha. gotcha. Um, because quite honestly, between the special edition had three discs. The first one was a Blu-ray with all the special features. The second disc was the Battle Over Citizen Kane, which was DVD. The third disc was the RKO 281 DVD. And then oh, nice. it came with all of these reproductions of lobby cards, this hardcover book. Um, and then I have the 4K Criterion, which has a bunch of special features, but not all the stuff that's in the Ultimate Collector's Edition. Right. Um, but I, I went back and watched Mank as well. So, oh, did uh, you? Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. So, uh, Brad, this is your pick. We'll, we'll kick it off to you. I mean, what do you, what do you want to say about Citizen Kane? I think you're you're right that this is one of those films that as you get older and mature, like it it definitely your your appreciation for it grows. I've always enjoyed the story. Um, I've always enjoyed watching someone who thinks because they have money they can solve the world's problems and and we still and, and so that's that's to me the most impactful thing about Citizen Kane is just how relevant it is in 2024. Um, and again, like we're newspaper uh, tycoons definitely um, knew that they could control a society because they were the ones who were gatekeepers to the news and could spin things and control messages and do all sorts of things. So it's interesting that uh, Charles Foster Kane goes down this rabbit hole of, you know, getting this money, becoming super rich, buying a newspaper. Um, But the interesting thing about, 1941 citizen Kane is it's like a non-linear story. So it's a complex way to tell this story. We're going, we're jumping through time at some points in time. Uh, uh, Orson Welles is wearing this makeup and then other times he's playing pretty much the same age he is. And then other times, you know, we're flashing back when he was a child and all this stuff. And, and, and then you, kind of come to realize that this movie is just really mean spirited. And what do you mean by uh, that? It's, it's taking, I don't want to say it's taking a shot at, but William Hurst is definitely in the crosshairs of this film. Um, and definitely his wife, um, who is played by a woman who goes by the name of Susan. I think her name was Miranda. Uh, William Hurst's wife was, um, but in Mary, this, uh, Marion Davies, Ma- yeah, Marion Davies. Yes. Sorry. And then in here it's, uh, her name is Susan is his second wife. Um, and she, I think she is the weakest link of citizen. If you're going to make a criticism of this film, I think it's her. She's pretty yelly and pretty, uh, she, she's, she's kind of, uh, nails on a chalkboard for me every time she speaks <laughs> she'll be doing a puzzle and she's just screaming 
Um, well, but, in the in the movie, she plays his second wife. In real life, Hearst never married. Um, he he was married, but his wife and family lived in New York while he lived in the castle with his mistress. Yes. More or less. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And and, and, and but y- you come to realize that this whole film is just kind of taking a taking a shot at William Hurst. Um, it's like a quasi, you know, biography of him. Um, I it, really, I, I, I'm going to disagree <laughs> in a way, in a way like it, but, but what I want to say is it starts off that way. And then we kind of see Orson Welles kind of morph into this Charles Fessler Kane person who like, takes the William Hurst persona and then elevates it to a whole nother level um, and becomes like this whole different character, this whole like megalomaniac uh, um, tycoon who, you know, kind of goes through the same steps as, as William Hurst, you know, he wants to be a politician. He can't, you know, all this stuff. So they, they kind of mirror each other, but they don't. Um, They, They do. I, 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 I totally agree with you on the surface. I mean, you, you watch anything about it. William Randolph Hearst was an influence and mm-hmm. was a basis for a lot of what Kane ended up being. But I think taking that on a surface level and saying, Oh, this is like a hit piece over somebody of that time period um, who thought they were sort of above the law or above society. I, I think that only scratches the surface of this film. Like if it was just that, it wouldn't have endured for as long as it has. Oh, obviously. Yes. Yes. Um, but I, I think then we flash forward to 2016 and this film takes all like no one would have seen the trajectory of 1941 citizen Kane when it comes to today's politics and how just easily people are manipulated through the news and fake news and all that stuff. So I think it's it. If you don't appreciate, if you don't like the film, I think that's okay. But for a film to be 80 years old and still be relevant and still be poignant makes it a pretty special movie. Um, and that's just not even talking about any of the technical stuff. Like I love the harsh shadow. It's got a real sort of proto noir look to it. I mean, this is a big influence on, the Maltese Falcon, which is another film that I love. Um, I, I just think like, to me, I, I just, I look at this film and say, this is, this is the, this is the birth of the modern film because it's just laying the groundwork and it, it's like the complexities of a storytelling and all sorts of stuff. So yeah, I love it. And I, I watch it probably, if it's not annual, it's every other year for sure, because I, I just think it's a beautiful looking film. And uh yeah, it 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 just means so much to me because I feel like this was the film you're supposed to love, and I do, <laughs> so it makes me feel like, oh, I, I'm doing this film thing right. But I, I love it because it's it's a fantastic film. Okay, Sammy, where where did you land on uh, I guess this viewing of it? I'm I'm assuming you've seen it multiple times as well, too, right? Yeah, I've seen it multiple times. I 
I couldn't tell you how many times I've seen Kane. Again, I didn't see it until probably mid to late 80s. My mom had mentioned it. Orson Welles was kind of a big part of my childhood. I don't know about you guys, but for me, it was kind of a big deal because uh, he was always on talk shows my parents would watch, like uh, Dick Cavett show. And But I, I only knew him from War of the Worlds. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I knew him. I knew him from some movies because he would do genre movies, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, he needed money. So I I knew him from movies, but he was always just this kind of big, imposing man. I really didn't know that he was this renowned filmmaker. Well, and just real quick, because I'm a little bit younger than you guys, when I when I come to Citizen Kane, he's well dead. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he's dead. Wells dead. Yeah, he's Wells yeah. dead. <laughs> oh my god! The, the, <laughs> Newsflash: Orson Wells is dead. <laughs> the uh, he um, I he would have been dead by the time I saw Kane too. But I but I at least knew who he was. And also the other thing is he was a pitchman. He did a lot of commercial work. Yeah. So we saw I saw him on TV a lot growing up. I mean, he was all over the place. It's no joke when I say that Orson Wells. You could see Orson Wells on any given night in America. <laughs> At some point on television, Orson yeah. Welles loves the Golden Corral. News at eleven. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I'm yeah. surprised he didn't pitch Kentucky Fried Chicken. I mean, quite honestly, he was like his voice was everywhere. You know? Yeah, yeah, it was, and it was a magnificent voice, and he was a magnificent presence, and a natural kind of raconteur, kind of storyteller. It just came natural to him. Dare I say, almost like a carnival barker in a lot of ways. <laughs> he just knew how to sell himself. He knew how to sell things. And he also could sell the fact that aliens might be coming down to take yeah. over the world. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He could do all kinds of things. Now, once I started inquiring about him, my grandmother told me the War of the World story. And uh, I never listened to that until I got older. But that was pretty fascinating to listen to. And uh, then I just kind of started diving in on Wells. And I have a complicated relationship with him because he does a lot of Shakespearean stuff. And he does it in the regular, or at least the most of the Shakespearean English, the old English. And I don't always love that stuff. I mean, it's, I have no problem with it. I understand its importance and everything else. It's just for me, it always kind of takes me out a little bit, but his Othello, I really like a lot. And his, uh, Chimes of Midnight is, is arguably one of the best films he made. Uh, he's got a handful of great films. I mean, I know he's remembered for Citizen Kane. And I think there's a reason, and this is what I wanted to talk about. The most fascinating thing about Citizen Kane to me to this day is that this is a guy who's 24, 25, 26, and doesn't even know how to make a movie. And he makes a movie. <laughs> and his ingenuity, he makes the movie. Yeah. His ingenuity comes from the fact that he didn't know anything. And this is a lesson in life really, if you think about it, that sometimes the best way to shake up an operation, a life, uh, the political system, anything is to put somebody in there that doesn't know what the hell they're doing. And you might be surprised what comes out the other end. Uh, what other, the other lesson is Sammy. <laughs> what? If you haven't done it by 25, he ain't going to do it. Probably not. Oh, no. Come on. No. By then you, by then you're in debt. So, you know, but the, the interesting thing about it is that the Greg Tolan wanted to work with him. And when he asked him why he's like, well, because you've never made a movie before. That's what's interesting to me. So he knew that he would do stuff and try things, experiment. And this has happened throughout cinema history. This is nothing new. Uh, it's happened throughout DW Griffin tried things. I know he's not a very popular name to mention, but 
he tried things. Um, I can't remember. Uh, you know, Kubrick. All kinds of, Kubrick tried yeah. things. Yeah. Kubrick tried things. All the great directors tried things. Of course, they tried to shake up narrative and move things around. Uh, even Tarantino tried things, but you can see the influence of uh, out of sequence storytelling, which is not a new idea. I mean, that's a novel idea, like straight out of books and things. Uh, a lot of books are written that way. A lot of great books are written that way, but cinema was not always told that way out of sequence, kind of jumping back and forth and stuff. I mean, Scorsese does this all the time. Tarantino does it. Yeah. I, I think, I think, and even I forget this all the time prior to this, the cinema going experience was very linear and there were very static shots and they relied on editing. There wasn't a ton of camera movement. Editing and writing. Yeah. Editing and writing were very important. Yeah. Um, and it, if you if you go back and look at films leading up to this, they do have a different, unique style. Um, and I I don't want to say cookie cutter because obviously there's you know Fritz Lang and all that other stuff that were doing just amazing things with German expressionism, but the Hollywood system and what it was producing was something very different than what Citizen Kane was. And even when Citizen Kane came out, it was not a hit. I mean, it, it could be talked about on on our regular show of Not a Bomb because it really didn't get notoriety or popularity until foreign audiences like um, started screening it. And that was about a decade after it had actually run its theatrical run. So uh, it it is it is monumental in terms of uh, from a movie making perspective, like you said. Sammy, just a person coming in and saying, well, I'm going to make a movie this way. And I'm sure everybody looked at that and goes, you, you don't do it that way. But it right. was incredibly revolutionary, especially in things like editing. Right. Right. Yeah, he was going to try everything. Uh, and that's what is most interesting about the film to this day to me is it's I think it's timeless because. First of all, it's influential, but I think it's also timeless because it just does weird things. It just. The camera is sometimes a voyeur and sometimes it's static and sometimes it's in the floor. Sometimes it's somewhere else. There's no real rhyme or reason outside of the fact that it just kind of looks cool and, uh, it changes things. It changes the whole dynamic. Now, like you said, you mentioned a, uh, a great name there, Fritz Lang, uh, you know, European directors were moving the camera. American filmmaking was not so big on that. John Ford was kind of coming along and he was kind of reshaping cinema and stuff. And of course there's the great story that Wells learned how to make movies by watching stagecoach over and over and over again, yeah. <laughs> which, is not a, which is not a bad choice. I mean, stagecoach is a movie that moves. And if you, if you haven't seen it, you should go back and watch it. It is a really, really good movie. Um, it's, it's very old and staged and people talk very kind of old English in a way. Um, so it's, it seems outdated and stuff, but the filmmaking is pretty amazing. And you can kind of see some of that stuff here, but you can also see the Fritz Lang stuff. If you think about him and the way the camera moves in through windows or up over buildings and into windows, it's clear that Wells saw this stuff. And this is what's amazing about filmmaking to me. It's not the people that always create it. It's the people that take it, it filters through them and they create something else. That's what art is. Art is something we're all influenced by. Yeah. At some point, there was a great caveman artist that inspired somebody that created everything. I get it. Should that person be renowned? Yeah, we'll never know his name. Geico caveman, maybe. But the truth is, great artists come from filters of materials that they see. 
And Wells is no different. He's a, he was a wonderkin and the wonderkins always kind of get lambasted for the lack, for lack of a better word. If you ask me, uh, was he arrogant? Sure. He was. Did he have reason to be? I think, I think so. <laughs> I think so. He was a wonderkin. He was a, a, a bit of a boy genius in a lot of ways. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I mean, I, I would have never, you know, I wouldn't have been writing plays and doing stuff and had a theater and, and decided to make a movie at 24, 25 years of age. I wouldn't have had that audacity. But I think the film still holds up incredibly well, and it's because of the style. Um, the acting is kind of dated in spots. Wells is, I'll just be honest, Wells is much better in many other films than he is in this film. I think Charles Foster Kane's a great character. I think Wells is a bit kind of cardboard in this in some t- at some point. Some points he's really good. But at some points, he's really kind of body and, I don't know, just doesn't really do anything for me. Maybe it's my disdain for the character. I don't know. But I can see where Brad's coming from with the 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 actress. She's loud and stuff. But, I mean, I think that stuff's supposed to be that way because Kane's supposed to be marrying down to try to create something because he's all about power. He's all about creation and building things up and owning and accumulating and hoarding for lack of a better word. And she's just another thing in his, uh, menagerie, right? Just another item for him to own. And I I find that kind of stuff fascinating. I also find it fascinating that, um, obviously there's some mother stuff here more than father stuff. And it seems like if you think about the Kane character, he's always and forever kind of driven by this need for a, a a love, almost a mother's love and uh, this bizarre behavior of conquering things and, and being powerful and stuff as if to impress a mom he's never going to see again. It's uh, it's very interesting to me that, that, that stuff. And of course the dynamic that I love the most, which is, He's willing to lay it all on the line almost at any given time. The self-destructiveness is there at all times. It's it's inherent in the character. It's it's who he is. He's willing to throw away marriages, life. He's willing to gamble big money on purchases and acquisitions. He's just willing to do everything. Now, the Hearst question I find interesting. Obviously, it is based on Hearst. Um. Everything I know, and I'm not a cinematic genius by any name, by any stretch of the imagination, but everything I know is from books I've read or bonus features I've watched on Blu-rays and Laserdisc and whatnot. But Hearst, I don't think he was nearly as offended by the movie about himself as he was about the portrayal of his mistress. Mm. (laughs) Right. He was really upset about that because he hid. She was a massive alcoholic and a real mess of a person. And he tried to keep that hidden his whole life and uh, protect her. So there was some kind of love there, some kind of something there. I can't, you know, I can't quite understand it. But, you know, who knows why these powerful people do the things they do. I'm fascinated by Hearst uh, in reality, and I'm fascinated by by characters like Kane. And I'm fascinated by Orson Welles. I mean, if anybody's going to play somebody based on a, a media tycoon, and for the record, these media tycoons still exist. Oh, sure. Yeah. They've always yeah, existed. It's, yeah. it, <laughs> they'll always be around. Yeah. There's always going to be somebody that's going to hoard all the material. Uh, Murdoch is one I think of off the top of my head. I mean, that's a good example of a Hearst like figure. Uh, Turner. Yeah. Yep. 
So I, I just, I, you know, I find it fascinating. And I think the movie is timeless because like Fritz Lang Zim, like um, so many movies in those early years, they just, they feel modern even today. And uh, so many filmmakers are still kind of riffing on these, these ideas and things. I mean, it's the use of miniature work. I mean, I, I, it's, it's, it's amazing this time around watching it. I never even had ever paid attention to the fact that when the gentleman's working in the foreground during the construction of Xanadu or whatever, all the stuff behind him is a miniature and stop motion animation. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know that. Yeah. There's tons of miniature. So the, uh, uh, when they walk into the, uh, personal library, it's one of the first flashbacks. Mm. You get this fantastic ray of light that hits the table. But the shot starts with this huge statue that's on a pillar. And as it pans down, that's basically a miniature. Um, and it's forced perspective that comes down before you get to an actual pillar and a table with the light shot. So uh, you wouldn't know it. You would actually think they built something that was you know 20 feet tall. But it's actually a little miniature on a table. And the way they film it and coming down and then hide the swipe before you get to it, there's all these little tricks of editing that occur, uh, which I mean, it's, it's kind of brilliant storytelling as well, because there are scenes where uh, he looks larger than life, but as he goes into the background, then all of a sudden the windows are 12 feet above him or something of that nature. So there's a lot of economical storytelling going on just through the visualizations of, Oh, now the character is being diminished by the events and you see it as the environment overtakes him. And yeah. they were they were very very intent on doing that through these backgrounds and and use of miniatures and matte paintings and everything else. Yeah, I would. Yeah, the say, technique is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, I mean, there's moments uh, in some of the documentary and stuff where they talk about they're shooting stuff and what Wells did that was so smart. I personally think he made better films than Kane. I think Touch of Evil is a better film than Kane. That's my opinion. Um. I think Chimes of Midnight's a better film than Kane. But this is a almost an inside baseball management type thing, uh, <laughs> kind of my career. He surrounded himself with talented people. Yes. And he learned from those talented people. Did he take credit maybe incorrectly sometime? Probably. It was in the contract. It was in the contract. He yeah. had to. Um, was he was he a little jerkish about it. I would probably say yes, but I mean, he makes, he makes another great film after this film, but arguably for me, again, I think another film that's as good as Kane, if not better in some ways in the magnificent Ambersons. And I don't know the guy had the the guy clearly had talent, but the amazing thing of watching this thing is that he's learning as he goes. And then if you watch his film career, he just keeps learning as he goes. Yeah, this is not a guy who was trained to make movies. He just learns as he goes, and that—I don't know—he's like this gigantic sponge, literally this gigantic sponge, and it's—it's uh, it's amazing to me that uh, his films, uh, almost all of his films, are timeless to me. Okay, well, Jose, so just oh, yeah, go ahead. Well, um, is it my turn? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I was just going to ask you. I mean, I, 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 what, what, what is your experience now with this film? And how has it evolved from from like your your first viewing? So, obviously, the technique. I I 
did a deep dive on Tolan's technique and all of the things that were sort of innovative with this. Um, I think it would take forever to try to explain the fact that Tolan came across this bizarre mixture of coded lenses, um, what what's called fast film or super emulsion film, meaning, you know, it's going to produce an image even quicker, whether there's low lighting or high lighting. Right. Um, and just the combination of all of those things to get the look of the film. Do you know um, how they put the camera through the pane of glass? <laughs> so there's a there's a shot where the guys are looking out the 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 window and the camera goes in and then it looks like it goes out through the glass. That's like yeah. For 1941 that's insane. Yeah, no there's some there's some great editing transitions but yeah, uh, you know, like Troy was saying, all the movies before this had a very sort of shallow depth of field. Everything was very proscenium. It was shot in one way and what they ended up doing was that you know, they close the aperture on the camera and they use these coded lenses and super fast film. And it was almost like the indie movement. They could light with very few lights and still get an amazing image. Well, um, an image that in the background and foreground was clear. So yeah, so would, that was the that was revolutionary deep focus. Yeah. 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 Deep focus because um the idea behind all of this, Wells had sort of impressed upon Tolan to make this like a realistic kind of movie. And when they thought about it, like the human eye, you know, you're not seeing like a focus pull when you're looking at things, right? It's you're you're drawing your attention to it, but they wanted something ultra realistic like the human eye where, you know, everything was in sharp focus, whether it was in the background, the foreground, and you would be able to see all of that up on the screen. So that deep focus technique is is one of the innovations here. Additionally, I, the I, fact that you can I, see the ceilings in a lot of these sets. Yeah, I want to. I want to just something you 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 kind of scratch my brain on, and I want to just kind of derail for a second. All those camera techniques and everything that lead up to the point of this film. And especially the fact that everything is in focus, right? And in in a lot of cases, movies leading up to this point, you would have a um, a wide shot, edit, close up. That's what you're supposed to pay attention to. In, yes. In this case, there's framing. Um, there's all of these. There, there's sort of composition that you have to be a active viewer while you watch this film. Whereas yeah. up to this point, it was very passive. Like they were going to tell you what to pay attention to either through an edit or something of that nature. I notice as, as many times as I watch this film, uh, a great example is the first time that uh, you see, you know, Kane playing out in the snow and the camera kind of goes from the window all the way back to her signing the contract. You still see him in the background playing in the snow the way that um, somebody's standing versus somebody sitting and you get sort of a stepped view, you're supposed to be paying attention to what's going on in the dialogue here. But it's very easy to kind of just look up and seeing what's going out in the window and seeing you know him playing you know some fake battle and getting shot and stuff like that. As many times as you watch this, you can watch all of these elements within the film, but as a viewer, you have to pay attention. You have to pay attention to what's going on. And I think even in today's... Um, I guess photography and cinematography, the directors and the cinematographer are trying to get the viewer to look at something and do the same things and say, pay attention here. 
And I find it very bold that it's like, there's all this stuff that's going to be going on. And yeah, this is very important. This contract's being signed, but you actively have to pay attention to that, knowing that there's stuff that's going on in the background that you can see very clearly. And they even used um, techniques where characters are talking to each other on other sides of this, uh, other on the opposite ends of the screen. And then something's happening in the background, which comes to the foreground. Yeah. And I think what's also interesting about the film too, is that the, the camera doesn't move a lot. There are a lot of these sustained shots where the camera is sort of locked down and you're watching characters come in and out and stuff like that. It's, it's um, there's a couple scenes in the, uh, in the newsroom building that they go into that are just fascinating especially when the one guy who's sort of running things and he's happy to be like, Oh, Mr. Kane. And then they completely frazzle him. He's like, ah, Bernstein. And he's like, you know, and they're moving his uh, personal stuff into the office. Um, But another innovation is these low angles. And the fact that you could see the ceilings in these sets, there was like 160 sets that they built. And a lot of the, I mean, you know, in the, in the movies coming up to this, there would be boom mic shadows because of the lighting. Well, because of the ceiling and the fact that they were constructed in a way, they didn't have to worry about the boom mic shadows because they could just put the mics up in the ceilings, which could pick up the sound. And then a lot of the lights and the cameras were actually lower and in the in the floor. And it's just, it's an amazing look. Um, that that pass in into the club through the top of the, you know, the the skylight and then into the club where she's like drinking and like miserable. I mean, that's, I don't know that it's, it's a wonderful like push in which you see done now digitally, but it's done so fascinatingly in, in 1941, you know, and um, these other shots where the camera's kind of going up and you're seeing structures, you know, very Tim Burton esque. I, you know, it's, it's a very influential movie. Um, I will confess that, I never got into the whole who is William Hurst and how does this really, really mimic his life? Um, It wasn't really until recently that I caught on to that. For me, what I find interesting about the film is that it sets everything up by showing you this newsreel, right? And then you go through, you know, the biographers trying to figure out, the reporters trying to figure out what does Rosebud mean? And they're talking to these people that were a part of his life and they're each giving a version of Kane. But the thing that really gets me is even after all of that, you still have no idea what was really motivating Kane. There's no real explanations. Um, there are unreliable narrators and I, you just come away from this movie, not really knowing who he is, just that he was this, forced to sort of be reckoned with and he did things that were completely opposite from how his he was idealistic and going into running a newspaper and standing up for the little man and then suddenly he became the tyrant that was stepping on the little man and you know just being material the almighty dollar my friends yeah the almighty dollar but the thing that strikes me about the film is is again i just I still don't know why he did the things that he did. And even when we discovered the secret behind Rosebud, we can pinpoint the moment where his life essentially changed. And that's why he clung to Rosebud. But what does that really mean? Does it mean he didn't like what he accomplished? He wished he didn't accomplish what he did. He wanted to be out there with his mom and not have this life. Like it's, it's a conundrum. It's provocative. It, doesn't give any clear answers. And I think 
that is the draw for this film as well is that you could i've seen it like since we announced this i've seen it like three times actually oh really um okay yeah without without commentary just i don't know (laughs) also i do think that wells is pretty swell in the looks department so of course he swells so he swells (laughs) um but uh yeah i just each time i come away just thinking like i have no idea who this man is yeah i think that's i think that's interesting i think that's part of its allure and part of its long-lasting ability i mean you heard me say that i interpret it as maybe all these things he does to to impress his mother or to maybe show his mom and maybe even his dad although there is talk in that scene that the dad would whip him so maybe he's not as close with his dad but it seems to me like, you know, my interpretation has always been that, you know, he lost his mom at a young age and he's constantly trying to find a way back to that. And and again, that and might some- be the right interp- inter- interpretation. Of course, the joke is that Rosebud meant this other thing completely and it was an inside joke. And, you know, it's it's basically been confirmed that 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 was that was an inside joke. But it also works as this other story narrative thing. Or it doesn't, depending on who you are and depending on how you read the film. Yeah. Yeah. But almost instantly, he's spiteful. Like, I mean, it moves from him growing up with Thatcher Mm -hmm. to then this whole wonderful montage where he's reading headlines. Thatcher's reading headlines and he's getting pissed off and he's breaking the fourth wall. and He's looking at the camera like, oh, what's he doing? You know, Um, so immediately there's this sort of animus about how he's brought up. How much of that is self-hatred versus or, or, you know, starving for love, as you say, seeking in other women. Um, also, there's the dramatic moment with his his lover and the and Gettys, the political rival who sets up this whole thing where the the wife discovers the lover. I mean, that was sort I of love, painful I love to watch. so much of, of of the shot where the camera's kind of at the bottom of the stairs. Yeah. Wells is at the top. The guy's coming down. There's like these harsh shots. I I think that's one of the best shots in the entire film. Sing, cool. sing, Gettys. Yeah, sing, sing. <laughs> sing, sing, but yeah, Gettys. No, the movie, but the movie, I, the movie's still a mystery to me, and I I love Wells's performance because it's it's almost. I mean, it is. Oh, and and back to some of what you guys uh, to what Rick was saying about the performances. Yeah, he has a theater background. This is what I discovered and sort of love. He had a theater background. He worked in the Mercury Theater with John Houseman, pissed off John Houseman apparently, and then went to make this movie. But um, he brought his theater friends with him. And I think that you can see that a lot of these actors are theater trained, not cinema trained. It is a different art. And that kind of comes out because they're all very big and, you know, uh, for the stage. But I liked the theatricality of it. I and especially the actor that played Leland, I think. I don't know. Did anybody get a homosexual subtext? Or was that, that just me? I trust your gator. Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, and, and to go back on, on Rosebud a little bit, <clears throat> I mean, at the very end of the film, he goes through all this stuff. His dying words are Rosebud, and the thing just gets thrown away at the end. After yeah. all that, it's just in the fire, and it's gone. Like, yeah. is, is that like the lasting kind of, kind of monument, not monument, but, you know, kind of piece of uh, 
Charles Foster Kane just thrown in the fire and it's gone. Yeah. What is the true legacy of power? Yeah, is, exactly. Is, is it just, uh, you know, is it just trash at the end of the day? I don't know. I think yeah, it's a weird twist on the American dream, right? Yeah. Like he but, achieves all this power and he just dies lonely. I got to be honest with you guys, though. I got to believe again, he had never made a movie before. I don't think he, I, I think the one of the reasons why this film's so alluring and so kind of mythological still to this day is because I don't think I don't think they really knew what they were doing. I, I yeah. think they just kind of had an idea of what they were doing, and then they just kind of threw a bunch of style at it and a bunch of camera tricks and a bunch of ideas. And I don't want to say that they didn't have any idea because Wells is clearly a smart fella. Mankiewicz clearly could write. So they knew what they were doing somewhat. But the legacy of this film, I don't even think Wells was ready for what this film brought upon his whole life. You mean they got a little a bunch of little Bob Rosses on there, little happy accidents as they're yeah. as they're making the <laughs> yeah. film? I mean, well, you it, know, actually Rick Rick talking like that reminds me of how, you know, Mark Hamill and all of them in Star Wars, they were like, we had no idea what the we were making oh, yeah. and um but george lucas had a vision and the movie comes out and people are just astounded but you know for every star wars there's a battle beyond the stars and it yeah. just you know maybe it just worked out even though they booed it at the academy awards and it wasn't a success that citizen kane is this sort of like gem that's treasure treasured over and over yeah. well you bring up mark hamill i re- i don't know where i it, what you know special edition or whatever but he went to watch some movie and it was going to play the trailer for star Wars beforehand. And he was sitting in the back and it comes on and it's over. And some guys like, yeah, it'll be out of the theater in a week. And he was like, Oh no. And then of course it blows up. But you know, initially it's like, Oh, this thing's going to suck. Yeah. Uh, but then it turns into star Wars. Well, it turns into citizen Kane. Yeah. Film film history is full of these type of moments. Uh, really. When you think about it, movies where directors come along and people are working on them, and they're like, "Oh my god, we we had no idea this was going to turn into this." Ghostbusters just, is like one of the most like yeah. m- monumental films ever made, and it was like it it was two seconds away from not being made, and it needed so much like m- basically miracles to get made uh, or to get completed. Yeah, yeah. but I, I, and then just as a just as a side note, in terms of this still being relevant. I guarantee you, you play this for a generation now, a younger generation, and they'll go, oh, this is Trump. Oh, you that's, know? that's what. And then, uh, and then you're going to be like, well, yeah. it was made in 1941. Trump yeah. had not. My, but my daughter still, had that same reaction to it, especially yeah, the yeah. scene where, I mean, where they pick up the newspaper and it was, uh, you know, fraud at the polls. And Angel's like, when was this made? And I'm like, yeah. listen. Well, I mean, you live in, you guys live in a city where fraud at the polls that you know took one of America's greatest writers. So yeah, um, it did. I mean, think about it. That shit's been around forever. American politics yeah. has been corrupt since the beginning of American politics. It's not it's not anything new. Um, but it's the megalomaniac or the charisma factor that is so bothersome to me that these people get in power still to this day through speech and and the power of news and all that stuff it's just it's amazing it's amazing that it stays relevant that way well it's that's the human condition i think mm-hmm. unfortunately um yeah it's <clears throat> you could 
I really didn't know how to talk about this thing. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Cause you could sit there and, and you can go, okay, take that first shot um, of just Xanadu and how each shot of the castle, it starts very much in the distance of the gate, but you always get the same lighted window in the same space. So as you get different aspects of the castle, as it's moving closer and closer, that that light never changes uh, until you actually see the light go out. And then you go into the castle room, and then the light looks like it's coming from outside the window. And I could sit here and go, man, think think about all these technical aspects and economy of storytelling and everything that Orson Welles did. Like my Actually, my favorite scene in the entire film is uh, when he gets married and you see time kind of occur through the breakfast table and how close they are. And then, you know, the next scene comes are a little bit farther away, a little bit farther away. And so you not only get a passage of time, but you actually see character development through this montage. And it's super interesting. And you, you, you look at that and you go, wow, that is almost like perfect storytelling in a film because you get so much information in just a little bit of time, but it tells you everything about these characters and what's happening to them over that time. But I got to tell you, like the question that I'm, I'm always bothered with is why do people even watch this thing anymore outside of a technical perspective, right? Um, you can, you can tackle this from so many different ways and maybe, maybe this is the enduring quality of it. We just mentioned something about the American politics, right? I mean, this thing was supposed to be called the American. So you can say, oh, Citizen Kane in 1941, same thing that's happening in today, same thing that's happened in the 80s. Pick a decade. We've had some media mogul or, or some personality try and control the masses for their gain. Um, the, the story of people starting out with good intentions and ideals and, and ultimately being corrupted by their own ambition and ego, that's not a new story. Uh, it, it's very Shakespearean even. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm looking at this thing now and the thing that resonates me at my age is the format of the story. And so I, I, again, I don't know if this is intentional, but I think what makes this so good is either Mank or Wells was at least addressing this aspect of life. And so the way the story starts is you get a newsreel and you get the entire story within like five minutes. You know exactly everything about Kane, and it just and happens. And they're trying to figure out how do you compress a guy's lifetime of all the stuff he's done in like a five-minute newsreel. Yeah, and they do it. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's this event of, well, his last words are Rosebud. What does that mean? And that becomes sort of the MacGuffin of journalists and everything chasing down that. And as a result of it, you get all of these different flashbacks and narratives of people in Kane's life telling aspects. And basically all you're doing is you're getting additional detail of the scenes that you saw in the newsreel, right? Um, and to your point, Jose, at the end of it, the reporters are kind of walking down this large, uh, just castle of things, right? One of them's even holding a puzzle going, we can't figure this out. We don't know what Rosebud means, <laughs> all this other stuff. And, and I'm looking at that and I'm going, well, maybe the reason why this movie lasts and has endured so long is at some point it is speaking to us as, as like people and saying, okay, when you sit down and, and I only say this because, uh, we've been cleaning out the closet and I found all these super eight digital, 
um, little video cassettes of like Cameron's birth, Angel's birth. So we've, we've got like this section of documentation of even when my dad's alive, stuff like that. So you can watch those things and you can put a nice slideshow together and you can you can show your kids and I could show my kids, hey, this is what your grandfather looked like even though you don't remember him, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, they can interview, interview me and I can tell them all these stories about him, et cetera. But you'll never actually know that person. You'll never actually have a complete understanding of that person. It will always be a mystery. And whether that person was nice, mean, um, intelligent, stupid, et cetera, it's always going to come out from the perspective. And at the end of the day, you may never understand their intentions. I mean, if you think about Charles Foster Kane as a young newspaper owner, he was really trying to do good and do things for the people. But at some point in his life and through a different narration, somebody comes back and says, well, he used all of that and he tore up his ideals and he just wanted power. But at the end of the day, is is it like, well, is that what you saw of him? Is that your interpretation of him? Or did he actually have some greater good in mind? You won't know because you're not him. And at the end of the day, when you're dead and they burn your sled or whatever it is, they, they burn my Jackie Chan doll over here. Because <laughs> my last words are like Jackie Chan, and they're like, well, what does that mean? Trucking Master 80, 2. Yeah, Trucking Master films. 2. Um, I'm laying over on the other bed going, rim job. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but at the end of the day, I mean, I, th- I think that's the enduring quality of the film because as you get older and you watch this film, you start to not care about the technical aspects of it. You don't care about what they did from an editing perspective and how revolutionary it was. You don't care about, oh, you can always tell whose flashback it is because in the flashback, that person's always in the lower right-hand corner and you're actually seeing things play out through their perspective because you're looking at it sort of the back of their head. All of that just falls to the wayside the older you get and you watch Citizen Kane because you start to sort of look at your life and go, what is somebody going to say about me? Like if they saw this slideshow or or newsreel about me and then you go interview somebody, what is their take going to be? And how different is it going to be across so many different views? Um, And I think that's what elevates this film to be one of the greatest films ever is, yes, it's a technical achievement and all that other stuff. But it's one of the very, very few films that if you watch it just based on its story and how it unfolds, it should give you pause to kind of go, what's your newsreel going to be like? And when they interview people to get the facts and, you know, what are they going to say about you? And are you paying attention to that? And are your good intentions being lost by your ambitions or your own ego? And I think that's what makes it sort of a powerful film. And and also we see at the very end, they're in, they're in Xanadu surrounded by all of his stuff. Not a single person there knows who he is or is a loved one. It is just all of his things. Yeah, and you make assumptions. And you get pieces of information based on stories that, at that point, every every story somebody tells about you is um, really an untrustworthy narrative at the end of the day. Because it's in the past. um, You're adding your own bias and perception to it. And so what's, what's fascinating about this film is everything you think you know about Charles Foster Kane is being told through somebody else in a newsreel, but all of it at the end of the day could be embellished or wrong 
or not factual. Um, and you know, t- take that dramatic scene where he tears up the, uh, you, you know, she leaves him and he's tearing up the room and he's going through that and throwing things around and grabs a snow globe. Some of that may have never happened. You don't know because that is a person. I mean, just the fact that as he's telling the story, he's smoking a cigarette and he puts the cigarette out on the marble because he has just no respect for the house to begin with. And he hated him. Of course, he's going to tell a story that makes Charles Foster Kane look bad. So all of their relationships with him are going to taint or affect whatever the narrative is at that time period. And when you take a step back and look at it, I mean, I think Orson Welles, maybe maybe he was and him and Mank were putting something so personal out there of just saying, and it's weird, Orson Welles at 20, Mank obviously was older, but here's two people coming at different spectrums of life, different age. And yet they're talking about something that universally they're both going to go through. Mm-hmm. And, and I find that fascinating. Well, isn't it I- I- ironic? Don't you think uh, that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that here we are, we're hearing, we're, we're getting who Charles Foster Kane is through the eyes of people who knew him. Yeah. And then Charles Foster Kane was telling the news or, you know, giving the news through his lens. So it's ironic that he would, maybe he's spinning the news and these other people are spinning basically the news on Charles Foster Kane in the same way that he did it throughout his life. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, it's, it's a, it's a technical Marvel that some, somebody could come back and go, I, I like Jose's reaction to it. Like, I don't know. I don't know what Rosebud means. I don't know what his intentions are. Everything else of that nature. It's you, vagina. It's, it's, it's vagina. Well, yeah, in real <laughs> life. But I mean, from a story perspective, yeah. you look at that and you go, yeah, it's it's an amazing film from a technical and craft craftsmanship. I don't know why I'm struggling with that word tonight. But at the end of the day, you go, but there's nothing there. Mm. There's not a met. There's no, it's, it's marvelous to look at, but it's empty. And at the end of the day, it's kind of like, well, isn't that the point of the film? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you got a man who spent his whole life making stories, creating, uh, I mean, you know, the great line, the one line we do know he stole from Hearst, which is tell him to provide this and I'll provide the war. Yep. Um, and then he's erased from history. I mean, to this day, Hearst is probably more brought up when people talk about Citizen Kane than oh, absolutely. anything else in American history. Yeah, I, I had this question for you guys too. Like, does knowing the story of William Randolph Hearst help with the appreciation of the film, or does it hurt it in some fashion? I think for a layman film watcher, I think it might help. Uh, for somebody who doesn't watch a lot of movies, I don't think for guys who, who when we pass away, everybody will go through our Blu-ray collections and throw them in the fire. <laughs> <laughs> My wife has said she's going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't want to haul it around. Hi, yeah. all you guys are going to die before me, so I'm going to inherit those. And I'm going to inherit all the greatest Blu-ray yeah. collection of all time. That's but true. it doesn't matter. Eventually, for just a few years, but I'm eventually, gonna... yeah, you will pass, and somebody will eventually burn these things. No, I mean, I, I, I think for the the the, and I hate this term, but I just I have to say it for the average film watcher. I think that adds a layer. I think for a film lover. I don't think you have to know any of that stuff because the technical I, stuff. I didn't really know much about yeah. the her stuff. And only before, you know, recording, I had actually read how incredibly similar a lot of this stuff was 
Um, but I didn't know that before my other, before my other viewings. And I just, I think it's, I tried to focus on the story, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, and, and for me, it's, it's a film that anytime I see it, I, I essentially see something I've never seen in a previous watch before. Mm, yeah. Because what we said is the camera's doing all this work and there's stuff in the foreground, there's stuff in the background and you're like, Oh, I didn't see that over there. Or I didn't notice that you're seeing. If you look in the bottom, right, you're seeing the perspective of the person actually telling the story of, you know, of, of Charles Foster Kane at the time. I didn't notice this. I didn't notice that it, it, it it is a very dense film, uh, both the way you can look at things and, and break down things. And what is Rosebud? Oh, he's got all this stuff at the end of his life, but no one really loves him and, and all this stuff. Or you can just see it as a guy who wanted all this, was had good intentions, got to the point where he was super powerful, died alone, the end. Yeah. No, yeah. it's actually, I don't, I don't know if this was intentional. Um, I haven't really dove into the commentaries, but you know, in the beginning, you know, in the beginning, how there's like this cage and there's the two monkeys. Um, they pay that off later in the movie. I think Leland after the fraud at the polls thing, and he's like, I want to leave you. I want to go to Chicago. I think he's the one who says something like, you know what you need is your own private Island to Lord over the monkeys. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, okay, wait a minute. Xanadu, his own private island. There's two monkeys there. He's lording over. Anyway, that, that whole sequence after the election, where the camera, you know, is sort of at the at at their feet, more or less, yeah. and they're having this exchange, and you start to get a glimpse, and and maybe this is this is probably the closest you'll get to motivation, is that whole speech of you want you want to get love, but you want it on your terms. Yeah. And and yeah. then he says, it's, Well, doesn't everybody want that? It's almost yeah. like, well, that that sounds like the the central driving force that Kane and all his acquisitions, um, in in acquiring not things but people too. It's he wants love, but he, he wants it only on his terms. You could argue that the Leland character too is the closest he comes to true love. Yeah. Uh homosexual subtext. Yeah. I mean <laughs> Well, obviously, I mean, we brought that, yeah, Jose brought that up earlier. I think, I think whenever anybody plays like kind of a Southern aristocrat, it's easy to kind of go with that homosexual thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Mr. Foster Kane, you know, he was quite the character. You know, anyway, the, but it it is, it is, it's a heartbreaking scene, actually, that scene that they shot in the floor and stuff. And that kind of comes up in RK2, RKO 281. You know that that they they did all that and stuff, and you remember that when you watch this film after you watch that film and kind of go back and look at this, and it's really one of the more pivotal scenes in the movie. This um, brotherly relationship that there's been some betrayal throughout it. There's been some some issues throughout it, as there is in any relationship, but you really feel like it's the it's the last straw for Kane in some ways, like the beginning of the end. I guess is what I would say. Yeah, and I mean, then he writes that review of what's her face. My God. But, yeah. but again, and that sends her over the edge. She goes insane. Yeah. But that, that whole writing the reviews sequence of just saying that he's going to prove that he still has ideals and everything else by finishing that bad review just to show that, you know, he, he understands the real world and, and then turns around and fires him. It's yeah. like talk. 
there are so many things about this that when you look at it, you go just just that sequence alone and trying to dissect that, even from a psychological standpoint, you can spend how, just hours having a conversation over what the hell did all that mean. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, you that sequence in and of itself sort of um, layers on another aspect of that enigma that is Charles Foster Kane, which makes it such a fun movie to just kind of dissect and go, who was this guy? Where was he going with it? Um, like I, I, I worried cause I, when I, when I show this to people like the watching it with Tabitha and, and angel, they had never seen it. So we sit down and watch it. Angel's take on it is, Oh, this looks very much like the political landscape we're looking at today. And, and she thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, Tabitha actually thought from a technical perspective, it was incredibly interesting. So I'm always, I'm always amazed at everybody's first time watches what they're going to gravitate to. Mm -hmm. Is it going to be the technical aspect? Is it going to be the story? Is it going to be some of the political commentary and how timeless some of that commentary is? Um, is it, is it going to be the rumination of like, <laughs> how, how is your life playing out? And then what are people going to say about your life, et cetera? This, right. this, it, it is amazing that this film comes from uh, such a young mind who at the end of the day made something that really um, it it's up there with the Shakespeare stuff, to be quite honest. I mean, that's why that's what makes Shakespeare so timeless mm. is some of those questions. Yeah. And let's not forget too. I mean, he made it as part of a contractual obligation. It's very interesting that, you know, everything that this kind of worked out. I, it, to me, it's this cinematic moment in time Yeah, that, you know, they, they just happen every now and then. The Wizard of Oz was another example, and and just these movies just happen sometimes. And obviously, nobody goes into making a movie for it to be a failure. It's always supposed to be a return on investment and a huge one at that. But it is interesting the ones that live forever. Sometimes, sometimes you can see it, sometimes you can't. Yeah, sometimes you need a little distance and perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. May I may, may I sidebar for just one second? Absolutely. Okay, so there is a company, uh, a, a comic company named Scout Comics. They make a, uh, well, I think it's just one issue, but it is called Orson Welles, Warrior of the Worlds. So what it is, is essentially what happens if War of the War Worlds was real and Orson Welles was sort of our protector of the earth uh, and he joins like an organization to defend the earth. It's, it's actually pretty cool. Um, is there I, cleavage I, involved? Uh, his, oh my God, yes. Jose. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Hey, look, uh, if, if, if the aliens are coming down here and they're trying to steal steaks and chickens, <laughs> Orson's going to fight. Yeah. yeah, he is. So it, it's, it's a really fun comic. Uh, I, I, I got it like probably six months ago, but yeah, it, it's pretty, pretty interesting. So if you're, if you're looking at that, it's, uh, scout comics and it's orson wells warrior of the worlds all right well i i, I kind of want to wrap it up with one final question so if if you're talking with somebody who has never seen citizen kane how do you end up convincing them that they should sit down to watch this film i mean what would be your take on it i'll start with you brad if you if you were trying oh, to do your elevator pitch and say hey citizen kane is actually something you need to watch like what how what, what would you kind of cling on to God damn it. Why don't you come to me first? Uh, it's like getting called on by the teacher and you're like, I have no idea. This was your pick. I'm, I, I know. I'm always going to start with the person who picked the film. Uh, 
I, I mean, oh crap, is that the theme? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Let me let me rethink my picks for a second. <laughs> to, to me, it's a story as old as time, told really well, and it holds. Uh, I mean, we're more than eighty years from its release, and it's more poignant today than it probably was when it was released. But to 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 like boil it down to the simplest elements of it is, I mean, it's just a great story of a man who has is well intent on, on doing something and shows just how easy, uh, even the most, uh, a well-intended person could be corrupted by money and how that fallout happens. And how do, how, how are people external to him, looking at his life. I know that's a little bit more than what you want, but I, I guess that's it. Like it's a film about how people perceive you as a person. Okay. What's uh what's your elevator pitch, Jose? If you, if you're trying to convince somebody to watch this, you had never seen it before. Cause it's an old black and white film and you're like, wow, black and white. Like if, if you're talking to younger Jose who doesn't want to watch black and white films, how would you get him to watch it? I would say go for the innovative cinema techniques at the time which helped to sort of elevate filmmaking and go for the theatrical, the theatrical nature of Wells's performance and the cast performance stay for the themes of the dark side of the American dream and the enigma of who is Charles Foster Kane. Okay. All right. A little less wordy than Brad's. I like it. (laughs) Not fair. He got to think about his answer. He did. He did. All right, Sammy, go. what do you got? Sure. Uh, I wish I could just say, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's no, cool. No. Uh, for me, um, I think it's it would not, be. It's not mid. There you go. It's not, yeah, mid. It's not mid. There you go. No cap. Uh, no cap. It's, <laughs> it's um, a great example of be careful what you wish for. It is it is the uh it is the cinema technique there's no doubt about it and around certain people I would definitely say those things but for maybe just somebody who was just curious to check it out I'd tell them that you know it's it's really a great story about how important relationships are and how you get through those relationships and how you handle those relationships really dictate your legacy and the end of your life Yeah I would just I would say what Sammy said yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. Hey, look. I I, I had this. Joey treats on his own question. Yes. <laughs> what Brad, Jose, and Sammy said. There you go. No. I I I had to I had to sell it or kind of pitch it to to the family, and I'm like, look, you want to see where modern filmmaking uh, really came from? This is the film. You're going to see it from that perspective, but it's also a film that in 1941 versus 2024. You're going to see a lot of the same themes and and people are, have been dealing with this stuff and it's not going away and you're going to see, you know, how ambition and power can, can isolate a man. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also an, an incredibly retrospective take on how people are going to view your life when you're not here. Like it'll, it'll give you a glimpse into when you die, this is how your story is going to be told more or less. So, yeah. and that's, you know, that's that actually you bringing that up. That's a very sort of powerful point. If there are young listeners listening to this, there's always kind of like, you know, losing this 
you know, foresight, looking into the future and, and, and understanding that actions have consequences. And this is like a meditation that sometimes they have with Buddhists and with others is, you know, what are people going to say at your funeral, right? You are, you are there, you are dead. People are, people, you know, are coming up to the coffin. What are they thinking? How are they remembering you? What are they remembering the things that you're doing? And if, if, you know, you direct your life and what you do with that in mind and hoping that they're going to say good things about you, you kind of can't go wrong. (laughs) So yeah, it's something to think about. Can I make a promise to you guys? Sure. I'm check out Charles Dix when you're dead. Oh my God. <laughs> go check him out. Just to, just to check him out. We'll be like, Brad. I'm not gay, but I want to see what your dick looks like. Well, here, well, you know what, Brad? At your yep. funeral, I will approach the coffin and I will slip in a Polaroid of my dick. <laughs> nice. Yes. Wait, 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 wait. He's dead and you're going to give him a Polaroid of what? That doesn't make any sense. To keep him company in the, in the afterlife. Walk up. It's called a retro what, dick picture. Okay. What, what 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 Jose's basically saying here is we don't know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> Rosebud. He's just gonna yeah, write Rosebud on a Polaroid of his Jose Hudelian. He's gonna be dropping <laughs> it in there. He's gonna be he's gonna be dropping anal beads and saying Okay. Except that if it if it was if it was written on my junk, the Polaroid would just say R O S. Oh my god. There's not enough room. Uh What's the next film? Who's whose pick is next? It's, wow. it's uh, that, Sammy's. That, that oh, Sammy's quick. pick. What did you pick? What are we talking about next? Oh, uh, I don't have the list in front of me. Uh, oh. The 1972 pick uh, uh, there. Oh, well, that would be. Uh, well, we'll get to the the poignant importance of the backwoods of uh, Georgia. Oh boy, and, uh, and uh, you know what it means to be on the river and be one with nature, and to find yeah. out what it. Uh, what it meant to be a man at one point and uh to be one with nature and the primordial side so are we squealing yes. like pigs so that's uh that's 1972's john borman film deliverance yeah this Love is uh, that movie this movie has fascinated me from the first time i've seen it i've seen it uh i don't know how many times in my life and it still fascinates me to this day i cannot wait to talk about burt reynolds I got to be like, that's, that's going to be a great conversation. A lot of themes, a lot of themes in this movie. We're going to have some pretty interesting conversations. I think. Can I make a confession? Yeah. I think I've seen deliverance all the way through one time. Seriously. Okay. I've seen certain certain parts probably 50 times, but all the way through probably, I, I know just once. I think I've watched it every year since I turned 25. Okay. Well, it's it's one of my annual visits. I love that movie. Yeah. It's Citizen Burt. It's what I'm Citizen Burt. Okay. Citizen Burt. <laughs> well, uh Sammy, you want to do a quick plug for Gentleman's Guide and, and let everybody know what you're you're doing over there? Uh yeah, we just released an episode um on uh Lethal Panther. Panther. Yeah, a little Godfrey Ho action. Having some fun with the ho. Uh <laughs> Uh, it was good to have Godfrey back on the show. Uh, I think he gets uh, uh, critically panned uh, more often, and he's not nearly as bad a filmmaker as people say he is. He he, he does have some bad movies. I was going to say, he's got some stinkers. Uh, he's batting a really low average, Sam. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's definitely a utility player at best, but yeah. that's okay. <laughs> we get some other stuff there. Um, 
So we just released that. And then by the time you listen to this, we'll be going into uh, Love Month. We're doing films that the GGTMC feel uh, show love to uh, each other, to people, to relationships, to weapons. Mm-hmm. So would deliverance uh, fit, fit into that? <laughs> deliverance would wow. definitely fit. Although I feel like the relationships are really forced in that one, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, uh, yeah. Kind of forced through the back door, if you will. Yeah, we're opening. Uh, yeah. We're really yes. open. We're opening doors here. Um, <laughs> no gay subtext there. We're opening Love Month with John Carpenter Starman. So. Oh, nice. Ah, Good pick. Jeff Bridges. <laughs> Jose, watch Skip Plus. It's coming back, right? It is coming back. I had hoped to. Re- I had hoped as we're recording this. I was hoping to release something, um, but unfortunately, since uh, I ended up getting a new job, I am behind on that episode. But I'm hoping to release it this weekend, and then our first full episode with a new co-host may be coming up. So awesome! Yeah, Brad, you want to talk about the regular show? Yeah, uh, I completely forgot what we were doing. So let me just delay here really? for a second. I, I, I'm going to have to okay, sit sorry, through sorry. a yes. whole evening of you talking about Red Rockets. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So we're, no. we're doing, we're doing uh, Jupiter Ascending. Oh, yeah. Which that's is right. by the Wachowski siblings. Um, and apparently, Channing Tatum plays a dog man. Dog man. Dog boy. Is he like. Well, not like barf from Spaceballs, but you know, kind of like it. Uh, uh, probably barf sexier cousin. Yes. Okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, wow. Can't Minus wait. Can't wait for what Brad's going to deliver on that one after God's I mean, of Egypt. What kind of dick does that dog have? Yeah. See, there we go. He's <laughs> 2024 has a theme, apparently. Um, <laughs> yeah. Let me see that dick. <laughs> Uh, I guess, I guess that's it for our, I, you know, kickoff of the classics for this year. We're going to watch a, a lot of really pretentious highbrow films. Um, heavy hitters, heavy yeah. hitters, man. I don't, I wouldn't, I guess they're not pretentious. Let's just say they're, they're just going to be significant in the world of film. Right. I, I'll tell you that my picks were generated completely on the fact of I've been intimidated to talk about them in some ways. Uh, I, I agree. I wanted, I wanted to pick films that would 100% be of my favorites, but also I would not know the angle that I would take going into it yeah. at all. Yeah. Favorites and classics are two different things. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I tried to pick yeah, films that I really enjoy and, and really love, but at the same time, like, what, what do you say about them? So, yeah, I so. went for provocative conversation starters <laughs> yeah you, you do have some good ones okay well i don't know if you're listening in the morning afternoon or evening thanks for downloading the show come back for the regular show when we talk about tanning chatham is that right tanning <laughs> yeah little little inside joke in our household there okay so uh yeah and uh we, we really appreciate you and uh have an awesome february we'll check you later Tune in next month for more classic movies.